Psalm 57 says this, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. God's faithfulness. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that you never leave us, that no matter what we go through in life, that you are there, that you are near, that you love us, that you want good things for us, and that you're using even this moment as we come before you, that you're using this to draw us nearer, to make us more like Jesus. I pray that that would be what we are about, is looking for you to move, seeing how you are changing us, seeing how you are working in us. And, uh, and I pray even as we attend to the word this morning, as we, as we look at what your word has to say to us, that we would get a sense of, of how much you love us and, uh, and all the good things you want for us. So thank you for this time of worship, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Well, good morning. I know we did kind of the shuffle, the musical chairs today. We've got Tim on announcements. We've got Dane leading worship, and, and I get to lead, uh, do the message this morning. So uh, I'm sure it's going to go downhill from here. I apologize. <laughs> uh, but, but it's good to be together. It's good to, uh, to worship as, I, as, I, as we prayed. Um, it's good to, to look at God's Word and see what He has to say to us this morning. This morning, we're finishing our walkthrough of 1 Peter. Uh, we started this all the way back in September, and we took a break, of course, for Advent and Christmas. But I, So I wanted to start with a quick review of where we've been, and, and some of those verses on screen uh, do a good job of, of helping us catch up here. The letter, uh, 1 Peter, was written by Simon Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest disciples or followers. Uh, Peter was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But he also supported and encouraged churches throughout uh, several Roman provinces in what is now the country of Turkey. As we've titled this series, the content of the letter really has to do with finding hope in hardship. The Christians originally reading this letter were in foreign places, far from Jerusalem, which was the center of the growing church. And these Christians were facing persecution um, from all sides that was increasing, Um, Peter's advice to them and to us is three things that we find in the letter. First, keep your eyes on God. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, 4 says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. The resurrection is proof of God's love and power for us. In Jesus, we have a priceless inheritance, and nothing can change that. No matter what we face, uh, no matter uh, what comes before us, we know that God loves us, and no person, no circumstance, no power or government or force can take that away. Number two, Peter advises them to live holy lives. 1 Peter 2.9 says, "'You are not like the outside world, for you are a chosen people.'" You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. That's 1 Peter 2.9. This line, uh, royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession, points all the way back to Genesis and God's covenant with Abraham. Holy means set apart for a purpose. God's people are to be set apart for the purpose of blessing the world. And that starts with us living in a way that is set apart. Because we follow Jesus, Peter encourages us to live differently. 
Holy lives are marked by fearing God, loving others, doing good, respecting authority, worshiping Jesus, pursuing peace, praying earnestly, blessing when insulted, being gentle, cheerful, glad. Living holy lives in the middle of hard times shows others the goodness of God. And third, Peter advises uh, those reading his letters and us today to count trials as blessing. 1 Peter 4.13 says, Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. We'll get to this one in some detail today because it's a huge thread in Peter's letter and in chapter 5. Um, the bottom line is that no matter what hardships come our way, we're to count it as joy. So, this morning we're going to close 1 Peter with chapter 5. Uh, open your Bibles if you've got them, uh, or, or pull them up uh, either at home or, or here in the building. If you're using one of the seat pocket Bibles, it's page uh, 1223 this morning, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. What I'd like to do is read the whole chapter, and then uh, we're going to go through a couple of sections uh, more closely. So let me turn the page here. 1 Peter 5. This is the NIV translation that I'm reading from, and it's in the seat pockets, too. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, who I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So let's look at how Peter ends the letter first, and then we'll go back to the beginning. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greeting, and so does my son Mark. A few interesting things here. Um, She refers to the church, so he's saying all of the church greets you. Babylon means Rome. Uh, Babylon would have fallen some 500 years before this. In the Old Testament, the Babylonians or the Chaldeans uh, show up and, and carry half the kingdom of Israel into exile. The exiled Israelites found themselves waiting for God to rescue them. Uh, while living under the rule of a hostile and immoral people. Then, in the New Testament, in Peter's time, the early Christians were in about the same situation, but with Rome ruling their lives instead of Babylon. So, Christians in the Bible often referred to Rome as Babylon, 
in these letters and in Revelation. Also in verse 13, Peter mentions his spiritual son, Mark. This is John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark in our Bible. In fact, the events of Mark are based mostly on Peter's uh, testimony, Peter's eyewitness testimony. In verse 14, Peter closes the letter with uh, encouraging the church to greet one another with a kiss of love. This was a liturgical practice in the early church. And by liturgical, I mean that a kiss was part of their corporate worship setting. Um, But don't worry, we'll never be this liturgical, okay? Uh, But it was part of their practice for a couple hundred years uh, in the early church. That's how Peter ends the letter. Uh, Let's go back through the rest of chapter 5. Verses 1 through 4 are addressed to the elders or the leaders of the church. 1 Peter 5, 1 says, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings. That might tempt us to jump past this section, but even if you're not a church leader, there are themes here that are important. Peter reminds us, uh, Peter reminds the elders that he too is an elder and an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. So if anyone can tell us to, be, to count trials as joy, to be glad in our sufferings, it's Peter. And this is how he encourages the elders. He says, be shepherds. So let's stop right there because this is beautiful to me. If you remember, at the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, um, he told Peter, you will deny me three times. And Peter does after Jesus is arrested. Um, he, he denies him three times and he leaves weeping bitterly because he's so ashamed of what he's done. But there's this scene at the end of the Gospel of John where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, has breakfast with his disciples and he tells Peter, he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter, of course, says yes. And Jesus' reply every time is, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. So here in this letter, which is written some 25 to 30 years later, Peter is still taking Jesus' words to heart and encouraging the church leaders to be shepherds, to do the same. I'll bet there are people in your life that God has used to shape you for good. Think back a ways. If you don't have 25 or 30 years to review yet, think back 15 or 10 Who are the people who have had meaningful impact in your life? When I graduated high school, I moved to Lincoln to study at the university. And because I was involved in Young Life as a high school student, which is a a ministry for high schools, uh, because I was involved as a high school student, I wanted to get involved in college. And um, that's when I met Mark Pogue. He was the area director uh, of Young Life at the time. Um, In July uh, of 1998, so this would have been after my sophomore year, um, uh, he, he invited me to be a program tech to volunteer at a Young Life property where he would be running programming for a month. Um, and, and Mark was the kind of guy that uh, he worked hard, he was really creative, he laughed a lot, he was determined, he, he wanted greatness from those around him, and he was able to get that. Like, he just inspired you to do, to do things and to do them well. So when he asked me to volunteer, um, uh, to 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 volunteer my time, to not work for a month, which is a sacrifice um, in the summer, I was, I was like, yeah, absolutely. I love working with Mark. And, and, uh, and a bunch of us went on that, uh, a bunch of friends went on this trip with him. Um, and that's where I met uh, Tracy Perot, who later became Tracy Wellstead. So it was a, it was a good trip to go on. Um, but Mark was a constant encouragement over the years. Anytime our paths crossed, he made me feel like I could do anything. Um, I was full of talent and potential, he would tell me, and, and I could do great things. And, 
And I believe that coming from him. One time in particular, I got to visit him in Florida. Uh, he was waiting on a heart transplant down there, and I was a student um, working on my doctorate, and I was able to drive across the state to hang out with him on the weekend. Uh, we went out for lunch, and we took a walk across this huge bridge, and the whole time, Mark would ask me about my plans, and, and, and he would encourage me in those, and he would help me think through, what could you do, and, and what if you did this? He got me excited about writing a book one day, something that I'm still figuring out in my head and, and, and starting to put to, well, to digital paper. Um, but he believed in me, and he let me know that. And that walk and Mark's smile and laugh and advice still move me today. When you walk into the gathering space this morning, I don't know if you look up uh, on a regular basis, but you'll see three phrases up there. You'll see uh, genuine faith, authentic community, and meaningful impact. Those are the things that we want to be about at New Cove. We want God to open our eyes to the relationships around us, to use us to have meaningful impact in the lives of others for Christ. Who has given you access to their life? Who can you encourage? Who will look back 25 to 30 years from now and say, I'm so glad that they spent that day with me or sent that card or shared that meal with me? Back to Peter. Uh, Peter tells the elders to be shepherds. And and I like how the NIV translation puts these next couple of verses. Verses 2 and 3. Be shepherds, not because you must, but because you are willing. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. There's a common theme that starts to emerge here, and it really comes through now in verses 5 through 7. In verse 5, Peter has just one encouragement for you who are younger. Submit yourselves to your elders. But that leads to a word for the whole church. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. The NLT puts it, serve each other in humility. In verse 6, Peter says again, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Humility, that's where Peter is going and ending this letter. Be humble. Serve each other in humility. Think of, uh, don't lord it over those entrusted to you. Don't seek your own gain. Willingly serve. Humble yourself under God's power. C.S. Lewis wrote that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself more is, is pride, it's self-centeredness. Humility is the opposite. Humility remembers that Jesus said, whoever wants to be great among you must be the servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus modeled and taught us to do everything with humility. Because an attitude of humility changes everything. And there are three ways that it changes us that come through in chapter 5. First, humility deepens our relationships within the church. Verse 5 says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. I like the imagery there. Humility is like the servant clothes that Jesus put on when he washed the disciples' feet. One way that we can show humility to each other is how we disagree on things. In the book Simple Church, Unity Within Diversity, Chuck McKnight makes a case for holding our theological convictions with humility. Theology is, is what we believe about God, and it should shape the way that we live and, and the way that we interact with each other. And our theology, even good theology, can be divisive if we're not careful. 
Of course, the Bible lets us know that there are some things that as followers of Jesus uh, we have to agree upon. The essential truths of the gospel as, as put out in the New Testament. Um, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus came to earth in the flesh. Jesus is a descendant of David. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and was raised um, on the third day. And Jesus is Lord. All Christians should affirm the above. But what about other issues? How do we hold to our convictions when we disagree with other believers on important issues that we see in the news or in our Twitter feed or in our city or our schools? McKnight writes, I don't advocate a lazy anything-goes approach to theology. Theology is important. We are right to study the Bible. It is good to hold convictions about what we believe. And it is certainly appropriate to discuss theology with fellow believers, but it must be done humbly. Our theology is important, but unity in Jesus is more important. So we have to have humility in all other matters. McKnight offers a few suggestions on how to maintain humility while discussing theology. Here are a few. Uh, First, realize that you are wrong. (laughs) Maybe not on one particular issue, but nobody is right on everything, which means that everyone is wrong on something. (laughs) You are wrong. You still have more to learn. Uh, Also, make every effort to understand differing viewpoints rather than trying to uh, disprove them. This is a hard one for me. I'll confess, I, sometimes when I'm going into what I know is going to be a tough conversation, especially uh, over theology, I've already done my homework and I've come up with all of my arguments and my points. I don't know especially where that comes from for me, but it's there. And uh, so I, I need to temper that. I need to keep that in mind. And, and I need to try to just understand the different viewpoint instead of trying to disprove it right off the bat. When we go into a discussion looking to win, we are seeing an opponent rather than a teammate. Instead, we should ask people for explanations. We should listen first without defending our own views. That allows us to seek the truth together. McKnight writes, if your beliefs are wrong, you should want them to be corrected. If they're right, they'll hold up without your defense. Winning a debate doesn't prove a theology but debates can tend to polarize people away from each other. Let me say that again. Winning a debate doesn't prove a theology. The theology doesn't need our defense. But debates can tend to polarize people away from each other. Be ready to explain your beliefs when others ask, but be even more ready to listen as others give their explanations. If we see an opponent, uh, if we see an opponent in someone that we disagree with, then we'll miss out on a chance to grow or to help them grow. We need to seek the truth together. Um, Finally, keep your eyes on Jesus. This is how we maintain humility in our convictions. One reason I think that singing in worship can be a powerful experience is that music helps us to focus on Jesus. We can be overcome by the life that we have in Jesus or how the resurrection undoes death for us or how God is always faithful. And I know that that can be powerful personally. We tend to lower the lights in here and turn up the music so that we can kind of ignore distractions and just focus in on Jesus. But what's powerful to me is when I'm leading songs up here is that I get to see everybody having that moment together. And that's something that I think we need to remember, that we are all the church together. 
when we keep our eyes on Jesus together, the things that seem to divide us fade away. So, humility deepens our relationship with each other. Second, humility deepens our relationship with God. Look back at Peter's instructions for elders. Be shepherds under the great shepherd, Jesus. Author and theologian uh, Henry Nouwen puts it, puts points out that we tend to see ourselves as the lone shepherd, but shepherding is never the task, uh, is never your task or my task alone. It's ours together. When we go it alone, there's a disconnect, not just from each other, but from the great shepherd. Nouwen writes, I have found over and over again how hard it is to be truly faithful to Jesus when I am alone. It is Jesus who heals, not I. It is Jesus who speaks words of truth, not I. Jesus who is Lord, not I. This is very clearly made visible when we proclaim the redeeming power of God together. Humility allows us to step back and to see Jesus working. Then we can give glory to the one that deserves everything that we can give to him. Humility also reminds us of our need for God. Look at verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That verse stands pretty well on its own. I'll bet a lot of us have it memorized. When we're feeling anxious, we can give that to God. After all, he cares for us. But in context, there's more being said here. If we back up a verse to verse 6, we read, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Casting our worries on God in prayer is an act of humility. It says, I trust you, God, to take care of this in your time, by your might. And this is another hard thing for me to do. Uh, I'm a Midwesterner. I grew up being told to, to pull up your bootstraps and get it done. If you, if you want it done right, do it yourself. If it's to be, it's up to me. And if I'm being honest, for me, that is a posture of pride. When a problem comes my way, I want to fix it. It's my problem. So I want to puzzle on it, think on it, worry on it, and, uh, and not give it to God right away. That posture of pride ignores the miracle-working, always loving, always wanting the best for me, turning bad into good power of God. Humility casts anxiety onto the, into the mighty hand of God and trusts that God cares for me, that he will lift me up in due time. So, Humility deepens our relationships with others. Humility deepens our relationship with God. And finally, humility deepens our understanding of suffering. As I mentioned earlier, Peter wrote this letter to the churches and provinces throughout Rome because Christians everywhere were encountering varying levels of persecution. The gospel was spreading quickly across Rome at this time. And at the same time, Jewish opposition denounced Christianity arguing that the new movement was not a sect of Judaism, but an illegal foreign religion. So that drew the attention of the Roman government. Um, So persecution under Emperor Nero started to escalating into the slaughter of Christians. When Peter talks about suffering, this is what he's talking about. Look at verses 8 to 11 again. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.
The devil prowls, looking for someone to devour. Earlier this month, my family, uh, we, we read through Job. And it's a book, if you don't know it, about a man who is devout, who loves God with everything. And we're given a look into heaven at the beginning of the book. And the angels are presenting themselves before God. And Satan comes before God, and God asks where he's been. So Satan says, roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth over it, prowling. And if you know the story of Job, you know that Job goes through extreme hardship. In the span of a few minutes, Job's livestock, which are his livelihood, are taken by raiders. The same raiders murder all of Job's hired hands. And Job's sons and daughters are killed when their house collapses on them. This is the hardship that Job goes through. And Satan is behind all these things happening, looking for someone to devour. But God allows these things to happen. Don't be surprised, dear friends, Peter wrote in in 1 Peter 4. When you face suffering, it will come. We must accept it. Peter knows this better than many. Nero had Peter executed in 64 AD, just a few years after um, this letter was written. But remember, there is hope in hardship. It doesn't mean that the hardship and the suffering is easy to go through, but it, it might mean that we need to humbly endure it and keep our eyes on God to bring us through it. Again, in Simple Church, Unity Within Diversity, uh, Eric Carpenter gives us some reasons for hope and joy in the face of suffering. First, Remember that God is sovereign. He's in control. He's a good God. He has a plan for you, not to harm you, but to give you hope and a purpose. He's bigger than any circumstance that comes your way, and he's in control. He's not surprised by what you're going through, and neither should we be surprised. Second, no matter what suffering we encounter, remember that Jesus has suffered more than anyone else ever has. When we look at the cross, we see the ultimate in suffering. Jesus, who is without sin, took our sins upon him to conquer death and to free us from the power of sin. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. He took it all. And there's nothing we could go through that Jesus doesn't know himself. He knows our suffering on an experiential level. Third, eternity with Christ will not be like this. Look at 1 Peter 5.10. God will restore us. He will make us strong, firm, and steadfast. God will do that. No matter how much we might endure in this life, it's the blink of an eye compared with eternity with Jesus, where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more weeping. That's, what we can, that's where we can find hope. Fourth, remember that when we suffer we can more effectively comfort others. Listen to this from C.S. Lewis. I'm not sure God wants us to be happy. I think he wants us to love and be loved. But we're like children thinking our toys will make us happy and the whole world is our nursery. Something must drive us out of that nursery and into the lives of others, and that something is suffering. If we're concerned with our own comfort, our own little world, we can't see to the needs of others. Suffering takes us past our comfort to see those around us. It gives us a voice to encourage and a path to comfort them. Finally, we are blessed when we suffer. Anything God allows to happen to us, he is in control, and he allows suffering to bring us 
to spiritual maturity and blessing. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard gives us this uh, golden triangle of spiritual growth. Um, and there are three big aspects. Of, of course, above all, uh, we, we need to be centered in the mind of Christ. But uh, I want to point out that the, the Holy Spirit, the action of the Holy Spirit is at the top of the triangle because that is orchestrating the entire thing. God is in control. And he transforms us and he changes us and he grows us as we follow Jesus. Then there are the choices we make, the, the disciplines to follow Jesus, the planned discipline to put on a new heart. And then finally, the third are the normal circumstances of life. Temptations, trials, suffering. James 1, 2 to 3 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, which leads to hope. Romans 5, 3 says, We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. God blesses and makes us more like Jesus, even or maybe especially in suffering. So here's how we're going to close the service. I want the, the worship team is going to, to lead us a song uh, that we've done a couple of times in the past few years. And maybe you know it. Um, either way, if you want to sing along, I'd encourage you to. It's a song that's really a prayer. It asks God to push us out of the nursery. There's a world around us that needs to know Jesus. There are families, there are friends, our classmates, our neighbors. And for many of them, they know hardship, but they don't know the hope of Jesus. We can show them the hope that we have in Jesus by keeping our eyes on God, by living holy, set-apart lives, by counting our trials as blessing. If God has spoken to you this morning, I'd encourage you to, to use this song as a prayer. Feel free to sing along and, and ask God to make us more like Jesus. But you know what? Don't just sing or pray this morning. I want to encourage you to do two things this week. First, make this your prayer throughout the week. God, make us more like Jesus, even if that means we suffer. God, give me humility to serve and to love those around me. Lead me to people who are dying to know you. Give me courage to share Jesus with them. We can pray through the week that God makes us more like Jesus and leads us through suffering to, to others. Second, I want to encourage you to read through Mark this week. Um, starting next week, we're moving from 1 Peter to the Gospel of Mark. And as I mentioned before, the Gospel of Mark is largely based on Peter's testimony, uh, so it's kind of a cool connection. This series is going to focus especially on Jesus' identity and purpose. Mark is a unique book in a, a few ways. Uh, if you've not read through it, you absolutely should this week. It's the shortest gospel at just 16 chapters. Um, if you read chap just one chapter per day starting this afternoon, then uh, by next Sunday you'll, you'll have covered everything that Tim's going to go through, so you'll be ready. But you could also read two chapters a day and be done with the, the gospel in just over a week. Um, so I'd encourage you this week, let's pray that, that God would make us more like Jesus. And let's read Mark together as we prepare for God's word next week. Let me pray for us, and, uh, and let's have the worship team lead us. God, make us more like Jesus. Even if that means we suffer, give us humility to serve and love those around us. 
Lead us to people who are dying to know you. Give us courage to share Jesus with them. I pray that you would do a work in us this morning and that we would commit ourselves anew to following you and to trusting you. God, make us more like Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name.